ye clouds of June and skies of June and flowers of June together cannot rival for one hour October's bright blue weather. Several years ago, we were looking for something to inspire a conference of mission presidents. In a very interesting way, we found it in a long unused primary songbook. The song entitled Call to Serve teaches in a few simple lines the message that I bring to you today. Called to serve him, heavenly king of glory, chosen heir to witness for his name. Far and wide we tell our father's story, far and wide his love proclaim. Called to know the richness of his blessings, sons and daughters, children of a king, glad of heart his holy name confessing, praises unto him we bring. The willingness of Latter-day Saints to respond to calls to serve is uh, a representation of their desire to do the will of the Lord. That arises from the individual witness that the gospel of Jesus Christ, restored through the prophet Joseph Smith and contained in the Book of Mormon, is true. Our baptism is a call to lifelong service to Christ. Like those at the waters of Mormon, we are baptized in the name of the Lord as a witness before him that we have entered into a covenant with him, that we will serve him and keep his commandments, that he may pour out his Spirit upon us. But the response to calls to positions is only a small part of the service given by members of the Church. I see two kinds of service. <clears throat> One, the service we render when we are called to serve in the Church. The other, the service we willingly give to those around us because we are taught to care. Over the years, I have watched one dear sister give service far beyond any calling to teach or lead in the Church. She sees a need and serves, not, call me if you need help, but here I am, what can I do? She does so many small things like holding someone's child, someone's child in a meeting or taking a child to school who's missed a bus. She always looks for new faces at church and steps forward to make them welcome. Her husband knows that when they attend a ward social, he can generally count on her saying, Why don't you go along home? I see they're a little short on help to clear up and do the dishes. He came home one night to find her putting the furniture back in place. That morning she had the feeling that she should see how an elderly sister with a heart condition was managing a wedding breakfast for a grandchild who had come from out of state to be married in the temple. She found the woman sitting alone at the church in despair, surrounded by the things she had brought in preparation. Somehow there had been a double booking of the hall. In a few hours the guests would arrive. Whatever could she do? This attentive sister took the older sister home with her and put her down to rest. Then she went to work moving the furniture around. When the guests arrived, a beautiful wedding breakfast was ready to be served. She learned that spirit of service from her mother. The spirit of service is best taught at home. We must teach our children by example and tell them that an unselfish spirit is essential to happiness. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, and he went about doing good. Each one confirmed as a member of the Church has the same gift and the same obligation. The Lord said, Behold, it is not meet that I should command in all things, for he that is compelled in all things the same as a slothful, and not a wise servant, wherefore he received no reward. The Lord said to the Church, Verily, I say men should be anxiously engaged in a good cause, and do many things of their own free will, and bring to pass much righteousness. For the power is in them, wherein they are agents unto themselves. And inasmuch as men do good, 
they shall in no wise lose their reward. But he that doeth not anything until he is commanded, and receiveth a commandment with a doubtful heart, and keepeth it with slothfulness, the same is damned. Sometimes, because of age or health or the needs of a family, we may not be called to serve. John Milton, the blind poet, wrote, They also serve who only stand and wait. To attend, to tithe, and to learn is to serve. And we often speak of serving as a worthy example. No service in the Church or in the community transcends that given in the home. Leaders should be very sure that a call to serve in the Church will not weaken the family. The pattern for official callings was established in the early days of the Church. The fifth article of faith teaches that a man, and for that matter a woman, must be called of God by prophecy and by the laying on of hands by those who are in authority to preach the gospel and administering the ordinances thereof. It is not in the proper spirit for us to decide where we will serve or where we will not. We serve where we are called. It does not matter what the calling may be. I was present at a solemn assembly when David O. McKay was sustained as president of the Church. President J. Reuben Clark, Jr., who had served as first counselor to two presidents, was then sustained as second counselor to President McKay. Sensitive to the possibility that some may think that he had been demoted, President Clark said, In the service of the Lord, it is not where you serve, but how. In the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, one takes the place to which one has been duly called, which place one neither seeks nor declines. When there is a need for someone to serve, the leaders talk about it and pray about it often more than once. They seek a confirmation from the Spirit, for calls should be made prayerfully and accepted in the same Spirit. There follows an interview to determine worthiness and to explore personal circumstances. No calling is more important, no service more enduring than parenthood. Generally, callings in the Church help parents to be better parents. Nevertheless, leaders should use both judgment and inspiration to make certain that a call does not make it measurably difficult for parents to serve as parents. One who has authority to issue a call must rely on inspiration to avoid overburdening those who are always willing. You should be given time to pray about the call so that, despite any feeling of inadequacy, you may have a settled feeling. You may be asked to counsel with your spouse. There is another part of the call which is required by revelation. It shall not be given to anyone to go forth to preach my gospel or to build up my church, except he be ordained by someone who has authority, and it is known to the church that he has authority and has been regularly ordained by the heads of the church, so that it will be known to the Church who is called to serve, names are presented in an appropriate meeting for a sustaining vote. That vote is not just to approve, it is a commitment to support. Following the sustaining, there is an ordination or setting apart. The pattern was set in the early Church when the Lord promised, I will lay my hand upon you by the hand of my servant. He further promised, You shall receive my Spirit, the Holy Ghost, even the Comforter, which shall teach you the peaceable things of the kingdom. When leaders set someone apart, they do more than authorize service. They pronounce a blessing. It is a marvelous thing to receive a blessing from the Lord Jesus Christ through the hands of his servants. That blessing can cause changes in the life of the one called or in the family. Leaders must learn how to issue calls. 
When I was a young man, I heard Elder Spencer W. Kimball speak in a state conference. He said that as a new state president in Arizona, he left his office in a bank to call a man to be state leader of the young men. He said, Jack, how would you like to be the leader of the young men in the state? Jack responded, Ah, oh, Spencer, you don't mean me. I couldn't do anything like that. He tried to persuade him, but Jack refused the call. Brother Kimball went back to his office to brood over his failure. He knew the state presidency had been inspired to make the call. Finally, it came to him. He had made a terrible mistake. Of course, Jack would not respond. Perhaps he recalled what the prophet Jacob had said when he taught them in the temple, having first obtained his errand from the Lord. President Kimball now did as Jacob had done in ancient times. He obtained his errand from the Lord. He returned to ask Jack to forgive him for not doing it right and started over. Last Sunday, the stake presidency prayerfully considered who should lead the young men in the state. There were several names. Yours was among them. We all felt that you were the man. We knelt in prayer. The Lord confirmed to the three of us by revelation that you were to be called to that position. Then he said, As a servant of the Lord, I am here to deliver that call. Then Jack said, Well, Spencer, if you're going to put it that way. <laughs> President Kimball replied, I am putting it that way. Of course, Jack would not respond to a casual invitation from Spencer, but he could not refuse a call from the Lord through State President Kimball. served faithfully and with inspiration. While we do not ask to be released from calling if our circumstances changed, it is quite in order for us to counsel with those who issued the call and then let the decision rest with them. Nor should we feel rejected when we are released by the same authority and with the same inspiration by which we are called. One of the great influences in my life was to work closely for many years with Bell S. Spafford, General President of the Relief Society, surely one of the greatest women of this dispensation. One day she told me that as a young woman she explained to her bishop that she was willing to serve but preferred a call to teach. The following week, she was called as a counselor to the Ward Relief Society president. I did not relish the call, she said. The bishop had misunderstood. She told him bluntly, Relief Society was for old women. Except for the counsel of her husband, she would have refused the call. Several times she asked to be released. Each time, the bishop said he would pray about it. One night, she was seriously injured in an automobile accident. After some time in the hospital, she was recovering at home. A terrible laceration on her face became infected. The worried doctor told her, We can't touch this with any surgery. It, it's too close to the main nerve in your face. That Sunday night, as the doctor left the Spafford home, the bishop, returning from a late meeting, saw the lights on and stopped in. Sister Spafford later told me, in that pathetic condition, I tearfully said, Bishop, now will you release me? Again, he said, I will pray about it. When the answer came, it was, Sister Spafford, I still can't get the feeling that you should be released from Relief Society. Bell S. Spafford served for 46 years in the Relief Society, nearly 30 as general president. She was an influence for good in the Church and was respected by women leaders worldwide. At a meeting of the World Council of Women in Suriname, citing age and failing health, she submitted a letter of resignation as an officer. She showed me their letter of refusal. They needed her wisdom, her strength, and her character. She often spoke of being tested in her calling. Perhaps the greatest test came when, as a young woman, she learned to respect the power and authority inherent in the priesthood and that an ordinary man serving as bishop can receive direction from the Lord in calling members to serve. The spirit of service does not come by assignment. 
It is a feeling that accompanies the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Lord said, If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will I honor. For thus saith the Lord, I, the Lord, am merciful and gracious unto those who fear me, and delight to honor those who serve me in righteousness and in truth until the end. Great shall be their reward, and eternal shall be their glory. I bear witness that the power and inspiration of calls is present in the Church. I bear witness that the gospel is true, and say, God bless you who serve, bless you for what you do, and bless you who serve, bless you for what you are. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Those invited by the First Presidency to speak at General Conference are not assigned subjects. Speakers pray for inspiration and prepare according to promptings they receive. I have been impressed to speak on spiritual capacity. A verse of scripture opens a door of opportunity for each of us. There is a spirit in man, said Job, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. To take advantage of such an opportunity, we need more than a verbal incentive. We need an example, someone to show us how spiritual capacity can be developed. I have selected as a model for my message President Gordon B. Hinckley. I hope he will pardon me. My motive in doing so is not one of adulation but of emulation. We can draw upon his example in order to improve our own spiritual attributes. This year, Sister Nelson and I have had the privilege of accompanying President and Sister Hinckley to 11 countries for which I have had some responsibilities. That has given us a rare opportunity to observe him closely under a variety of conditions. His teachings are always inspiring and relevant. They should be studied carefully and applied individually. They represent the word of the Lord for his people. But my purpose is not to review the content of President Hinckley's messages. Instead, I would like to focus upon his spiritual capacities. He has developed many, including faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, brotherly kindness, godliness, charity, humility, and diligence. His humility, for example, is so sincere that he would have me point only to the Lord Jesus Christ as our great exemplar. Of course he is. The Master said, I have given you an example that you should do as I have done. We must never lose sight of the Savior's enduring standard as the ultimate for each of us. But we can also learn much from a man who has spent his entire lifetime in striving to be more like the Lord. More than 87 years ago, Gordon B. Hinckley was an infant cradled in the arms of his loving parents. That newborn babe looked much as any other, I presume. An infant's body is tiny, and its spiritual capacities are undeveloped. While the body may reach the peak of its maturation in a few years, the development of the spirit may never reach the limit of its capacity because there is no end to progression. President Hinckley's personality, manner, and native intelligence have always been uniquely his. To these inborn attributes, however, he has added spiritual capacities, and they are continuing to increase. Both his parents and he understood the importance of education and a mission. After his graduation from the university, he faced a major decision in 1933 when he was called to go on a mission. At that time, 
most young men in the Church were not able to serve because of a global economic depression that deprived nearly everyone of available cash. Earlier, his wonderful mother, with foresight and faith, had established a small savings account for his mission. Though she died before his call, her fund sent him on his way. Shortly after Elder Hinckley's labors began in England, he became discouraged and wrote to his father. After reading that letter, his father's wise reply closed with these words, Forget yourself and go to work. Thanks to noble parents and a crucial decision to remain, Elder Hinckley completed his mission with honor. Now he often states that the good things that have happened to him since have all hinged upon that decision to stay. On his mission, he developed good habits of study, work, communication, budgeting, time management, and more. There he learned that nothing is too hard for the Lord. Long ago, President Hinckley harnessed the power of prayer. I have watched him pray over many weighty matters and receive inspired answers. Prayer invites those ennobling attributes of the Spirit that are ultimately bestowed upon all who are true followers of Jesus Christ. Hobbies can help in spiritual development—music, dance, art, writing, or among the creative activities that can enrich the soul. A good hobby can dispel heartache and give zest to life. Through the years, one of President Hinckley's hobbies has been his home. As a young father, he learned how to build. He acquired the skills necessary to remodel a house and make needed repairs. And more important, he has built and maintained the trust of his wife and their children. Together they have established and are still adding to wonderful memories with their children and grandchildren who know that they are part of a chosen generation called out of darkness into the marvelous light of the Lord. From the Hinckley's parental example, we can learn a great lesson. Love at home comes when companions cultivate their commitment to keep the commandments of God. President Hinckley's love of learning is catalyzed by curiosity. He grasps every opportunity to learn from others. On one occasion, I heard him quiz a local security officer for nearly an hour regarding crime control in a major city. I have heard him converse with building contractors, reporters, and those who specialize in the arts, architecture, business, government, law, medicine, and other disciplines. He knows their vocabularies, their challenges, and their strengths. His remarkable ability as a writer has been gained by his living close to the Spirit. Similar skills can come to others, too, for scriptures state that such has been given unto as many as called upon God to write by the Spirit of inspiration. Through the years, President Hinckley has developed a remarkable sense of humor. You have heard his quip that Sister Hinckley and I are learning that the so-called golden years are laced with lead. (laughs) I might add a pun, President. We are grateful to be led by that kind of lead. (laughs) It gives ballast to balance anyone who might lean too far in any direction, and it gives stability to character. While I focus upon President Hinckley, Sister Hinckley should also be included. They have been married for sixty years and have long been one in spirit while maintaining their individuality. They do not waste time pondering the past or fretting about the future, and they persevere 
in spite of adversity. While going from a chapel to an airport in Central America, their vehicle was involved in an accident. Sister Nelson and I were traveling behind them and saw it occur. A truck loaded on top with unsecured metal rods approached them at an intersection. To avoid a collision, its driver suddenly stopped the truck, launching those iron rods like javelins to pierce the Hinckley's car. Windows were smashed, fenders and doors were dented. The accident could have been very serious. While shattered glass was being removed from their clothing and skin, President Hinckley said, Thank the Lord for his blessing. Now let's continue on in another car. <laughs> Among President Hinckley's spiritual attributes is that of compassion. He is sympathetic to people and feels a strong urge to help them. I have watched him weep with those who mourn and rejoice when saints are blessed. Such compassion can come to anyone whose heart has truly been touched by the Spirit of the Lord. President and Sister Hinckley have demonstrated that the capacity to understand increases as one learns and then teaches with diligence. Unless illness interferes, age does not diminish. It augments the capacity for spiritual development. Each president of the Church, armed with the Holy Ghost as a constant companion, inherits an enormous workload at an age when most men would be retired. President Hinckley sets a pace that is unprecedented. In 1996, he visited missionaries, members, and friends of the Church in 23 nations on four continents. During that year, he gave more than 200 major discourses. His stride in 1997 continues to follow that same pattern. This strenuous schedule is driven by his determination to be anxiously engaged in building the kingdom of God. Often I have heard him say, I don't know how to get anything done except getting on my knees and pleading for help and then getting on my feet and going to work. Unshakable faith, hard work, and contagious optimism epitomize our prophet. I have watched President Hinckley in speaking before great congregations depend upon the Holy Ghost who serves to enlighten and ennoble the mind, to purify and sanctify the soul, to incite to good works, and to reveal the things of God. President Hinckley has achieved spiritual supremacy over physical feelings. Even when entitled to normal complaints of jet lag or burnout, he is attentive. I believe that his personal antidote for fatigue is enthusiasm for the work. He is energized by the Lord who said, I will impart unto you of my spirit which shall enlighten your mind and fill your soul with joy. One of our most memorable experiences occurred when we visited the temple construction site in Guayaquil, Ecuador. There, President Hinckley recounted to us how that property was selected. On a prior visit, he had been shown several possible locations, but none seemed to satisfy him. While prayerfully searching, he asked about ground on a hill not far from the airport, but it was said to be not for sale. President Hinckley directed that they visit that property anyway. There, he received inspiration from the Almighty that this was the right place for the temple. Now we were privileged to stand on that spot, reserved by the Lord and then procured for this sacred purpose. Our joy was indescribable. The prophet makes major decisions on a daily basis. This he does with great capacity. Meanwhile, he encourages each of us to make choices that will give us growth and joy in this life and eternal life in the world to come. This president of the Church calls many people to serve, knowing that much is required of them. 
He is keenly aware of their opportunities and risks. Yes, this work requires sacrifice, he said. It requires effort. It means courage to speak out and faith to try. It needs men and women of solemn purpose. We know that there are some limits on what you can do, but we know also that there need be no limits on enthusiasm, planning, thoughtful consideration, and effort. Brothers and sisters, the spirit that dwells within each of us can be enriched with enthusiasm and enlightened by the Almighty. The process of spiritual growth is revealed in the scriptures. Intelligence cleaveth unto intelligence. Wisdom receiveth wisdom. Truth embraceth truth. And light cleaveth unto light. That which is of God is light. And he that receiveth light continueth in God receiveth more light. And that light groweth brighter and brighter until the perfect day. Gratefully we follow prophets who have been given a divine commission. Whatsoever they shall speak when moved upon by the Holy Ghost shall be scripture, shall be the will of the Lord, shall be the mind of the Lord, shall be the word of the Lord, shall be the voice of the Lord, and the power of God unto salvation. While we follow prophetic teachings, we can develop our spiritual capacities by emulating one such as President Gordon B. Hinckley. I thank God for this prophet. He is the Lord's anointed. Willingly I follow him. I love him and sustain him. I so testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we thank you for the tremendous response to the General Relief Society meeting. One woman came up to me and said, I'm so excited. Just give me my marching orders. I'm ready to go. I'm not here to give marching orders. You can find those on your knees. But with the enthusiasm I felt in her voice, she could tackle and solve any problem in her family, ward, or neighborhood. In every auxiliary, we need to circle our wagons and prepare for increased numbers. In the 25th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord instructed Emmy Smith, And verily I say unto thee, that thou shalt lay aside the things of the world and seek for the things of a better. What are the things of a better? Pioneers past and present have shown us. Walk with me in the shoes of several pioneers, and you will see how saints have put aside the things of this world and found the things of a better. In my hand, I am holding a pair of pioneer shoes. They were made by a modern-day pioneer, Brother Robert King, while he was serving as a missionary in Nauvoo. He was the first member of his family to join the Church, or so he thought. Brother King and his wife are currently serving as family history missionaries, and in the course of his research he discovered that his great-grandfather Reed and his great-uncle Abraham joined the Church in 1835. But Reed was lost. He wandered down unknown paths, and the tender seedling of faith within him died. Such falling away concerns me. As I have traveled and met new converts, their eyes ablaze with the joy and peace of their newfound faith has brought them. I have seen them make great sacrifices to join the fold. We must honor their sacrifice by loving them and strengthening them. My desire is to plead with our sisters to stop worrying about a phone call or a quarterly or monthly visit and whether that will do and concentrate instead of nurturing tender souls. Our responsibility is to see that the gospel flame continues to burn brightly. Our charge is to find the lost sheep 
and help them feel our Savior's love. As Elder Neil A. Maxwell says, it is easier to find and help the one when the ninety and nine are securely together. By strengthening each other spiritually, building faith and fellowship, we wear the shoes of pioneers. Allow me to tell you the rest of Brother King's story. Remember that the seed of faith was planted in the lives of both his great-grandfather, Reed, and his great-uncle, Abraham. What became of Abraham? He kept the faith. Feeling fulfilled in the cause, Abraham endured the persecutions and trials of the pioneer migration west. Due to Abraham's commitment to the cause of Zion, his posterity includes more than 2,000 members of the Church today. Just as Abraham is loved and revered for being a courageous pioneer in his family, so will my friend Robert King. He pioneers his way through a lost line of family history and caught up with his great-grandfather, Reed. Because Brother King chose to seek for the things of a better and don his pioneer shoes, he is a conduit through which generations, both past and future, will receive the blessings of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we feel of that pioneer spirit and come to know and understand our past, we will gain strength for the future. Brothers and sisters, put on our pioneer shoes. Search our past. Write our family histories. A plaque hanging on the wall of my home invites me to remember where I came from each day. It reads, No matter if a tree grows to more than a thousand feet in height, each leaf, each day, must return to its roots for nourishment. No matter what our family history may be, we all can root ourselves in the gospel of Jesus Christ and receive spiritual nourishment on a daily basis. This year, we have been strengthened by the lives of the pioneers of the past. May we carry on by strengthening ourselves spiritually and then nurturing the faith of those we serve. While driving along one morning, Sister Carol Petranek, Stake Relief Society president in Silver Springs, Maryland, received inspiration regarding their upcoming women's conference. She felt that each sister should be asked to write a brief narrative of the first woman in her family to join the Church. The sisters then compiled their stories into a book which I hold in my hand entitled A Heritage of Sisterhood. It is filled with stories of faith and commitment. Sister Donna Packer, wife of President Boyd K. Packer, had similar promptings. She diligently researched and wrote the history of the Packer family into a colorful and moving story which reads much like a historical novel. The book details a rich legacy of pioneer spirit and faith. During the course of her research, Sister Packer became acquainted with those who owned Groombridge Place, the family estate in England. President and Sister Packer were invited to stay at the estate. President Packer put his thoughts and feelings to poetry. I would like to share the closing verse of that poem, quote, Our heritage, like life itself, we keep and yet pass on. In doing so, we pay the debt we owe to those now gone. What came from them we hold in trust, stored treasure that will last. Like Groombridge Place, our lives are built on footings from the past. Close quote. The stronger our spiritual footings, the greater our capacity to build the kingdom and the greater our joy. As you write your family histories, as you tend to lost sheep, as you nurture the seedlings of faith in others, you will find yourselves saying, Is it already the end of the day? Rather than, Will this day ever end? Pioneer women did not have time to wallow in discouragement. They were too busy working their way towards Zion. I share President Hinckley's optimism 
as I have witnessed modern-day pioneers on the frontiers of the gospel as well as in its well-established stakes and wards. That same faith that emanates from early history I experienced firsthand in Mendoza, Argentina. I will never forget Sister Elda Nelly Sanchez. Even in her sickbed, she's a pioneer. This valiant woman has raised a righteous family and served faithfully as the Church has grown from its infancy in Argentina. But now she suffers from the ravages of cancer. As I was ushered into her bedroom, her countenance glowed with wisdom and testimony. She expressed her gratitude for the gospel of Jesus Christ and said of her illness, quote, I am grateful for where I am and what I am going through because I know that my Heavenly Father loves me." Close quote. Like Sister Sanchez, we can feel of our Heavenly Father's love. He knows our circumstances and our sorrows and will not leave us comfortless. We need only to seek for the things of a better, and we will feel of His perfect love. An early pioneer woman named Eliza Cheney was able to put aside the things of the world because she had nurtured the seed of faith within her. While at winter quarters, Eliza received a letter from her parents offering her any amount of money to denounce her newfound religion and come home. She tightened the laces on her pioneer shoes. Even in such bitter conditions, Eliza's faith burned bright. She wrote back to her parents, quote, I have not the most distant idea of returning, neither has Nathan. Our cause is just and onward. I did not embrace this work hastily. I came into it understandingly. I weighed the subject. I counted the cost, and I knew the consequence of every step I took. If I could be among the numberless throng that John saw whose robes were washed white in the blood of the Lamb, I must, like them, come up through much tribulation, and instead of thinking it hard that I have these difficulties to pass through, I count it all joy that I have been counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. Close quote. Brothers and sisters, whether on the plains of Nebraska, in Argentina, the highways of Maryland, or within the walls of our own homes, the simple faith of a true pioneer is powerful and eternal. As Neil A. Maxwell has said, quote, significantly, Church members did not become inactive while crossing the plains when the sense of belonging and being needed was so profound. Close quote. Do our precious converts, our reactivated and longtime members, have that same sense of belonging and being needed? If not, we must nurture their tender souls. It made all the difference for Brother King's great uncle Abraham Owen Smoot, and it will make the difference for you and me. I thank my Father in heaven for all the pioneers of the past and present who have put aside the things of the world. As we emulate their simple faith and virtues, we will find peace. May we don our pioneer shoes and choose the better part is my humble prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Brothers and sisters, I bring you the greetings of the saints from the saints of southern Mexico. I was born in Mexico, as were my father and my grandfather before me. Although I was raised and educated in the United States from about six years of age, I retained throughout my life a love for and a fascination with Latin America, its wonderful people, and its kaleidoscope of cultures. Although as a child I was always aware of my family roots in Mexico and their role in the establishment of the Lord's Kingdom there, my real love began when, as a young missionary in Argentina, I watched people prepared by the Spirit eagerly accept the gospel, and I saw the peace and joy that it brought to their lives. My growing love was not just for Latin America, 
but for the work of the Lord among the people there. So in 1975, with less than four years out of law school, there was no hesitation on my part when I was offered a position as church legal counsel in South America. With three small children, my wife and I moved to Montevideo, Uruguay. We were blessed with five more children in the ensuing years, born to us in various countries of South America. Our children have been raised in the Spanish-speaking countries of the world, and each one has a deep appreciation for the diversity in their cultural and linguistic heritage. In the past 22 years, we've had a front-row seat to watch the explosive unfolding of the Lord's work in Latin America. Literally millions have joined the Church in these years, and we have seen it grow from a mere handful of stakes to over 700 at the present time. We have six functioning temples and five more under construction in these countries. What a tremendously exciting time to be alive and to be involved in this great work of blessing our Father's children. Yes, these past years have been incredibly exciting, challenging, and immensely enriching for us as a family. But we have learned much more than geography, culture, and language. We have learned new and deeper meanings for words like love, joy, service, and sacrifice. For example, we've watched families save for years and then travel for up to 72 hours on a cramped bus with small children over poor roads just to be able to enjoy the blessings of the sacred ordinances of the temple. And we've watched humble, devoted priesthood and auxiliary leaders strive to build the kingdom and to bless the lives of the saints, but without having the advantages of telephones or personal vehicles. We've also learned that no one culture, people, our country has a corner on love, warmth, or kindness. As we would periodically return to the United States to visit family and friends, it would be our privilege to attend various wards in several different states. It wasn't until our children became adolescents that we began to notice differences in the spirits of the various wards. Some wards our children loved to visit because they quickly found friends among the youth, and we all received a warm and hearty welcome. But there were other wards to which our children returned with less enthusiasm, and there was a noticeable absence of the warm and hearty welcome. We then began to observe that in some wards we visited in the U.S. as well as in Latin America, if we had been investigators or new members, we would not have felt very welcome. The Apostle Paul taught the Ephesians, Ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And yet, on occasion, we felt like strangers and foreigners in the very Church of Jesus Christ to which we belonged. These experiences helped us become aware of the discomfort that newcomers might occasionally feel in coming to our chapels. And these made us conscious of the need we all have to improve what we call our fellowshipping skills. We have occasionally observed wards in Latin America, Spain, and in the United States where humble new converts to the Church have not been received with open arms or warm abrazos. And so we've all seen the need to improve our retention of new converts. Brothers and sisters, we have the richest blessings that God can give to His children. We have the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ought to be the most open, friendly, happy, kind, considerate, thoughtful, loving people in the whole world. Now, we do pretty well at fulfilling callings, at going to meetings, at paying our tithing, but have we learned to truly live the second great commandment, Thou shalt love this, thy neighbor as thyself? This is not something that can be assigned to the elders' quorum or to the visiting teachers. This has to spring from the heart of every true disciple of Christ. 
a person who will look automatically and without being asked for opportunities to serve, to uplift and strengthen his fellow man. We are reminded of the Savior's words, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Will non-members, new converts, and visitors to our chapels recognize us as his disciples by the warmth of our greeting, by the ease of our smiles, by the kindness and genuine concern that shine in our eyes? Let us pay more attention to those who are new to our congregations. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught, For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? In building the kingdom of God, every positive act, every friendly greeting, every thoughtful, kind note contributes to the strength of the whole. It is my prayer that we may be open and outgoing, friendly and helpful to all who come among us. But let us give special care and concern for the new converts to the Church. When we detect a halting step or a stumble as they begin their journey on the gospel path, let us be there to lift and support with words of kindness and concern. Let us be available to give gentle, loving counsel that will strengthen and sustain. Let us conscientiously look for occasions to show that love which the Savior admonished us to have when he said, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. I testify that this is the Church of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he lives that he directs this work. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. As the choir is sung so beautifully, Christ is the source of truth and light. As a young missionary in Switzerland, I was strongly impressed with the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to change dramatically people's lives for the better, bringing to those who follow the precepts peace of mind, self-worth, and joy. Such feelings are not always easy to achieve. After all, we live in an often mean and brutal world. Our societies too frequently reflect violence, hatred, and immorality. The Apostle Paul accurately described our day in his letter to Timothy. In the last days, he said, Perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, despisers of those that are good, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Clearly, the stresses and strains that assault us cannot be attributed to a lack of knowledge. In fact, a current weekday edition of the New York Times contains more information than the average person was likely to come across in a whole lifetime in 17th century England. But unfortunately, the explosive increase in information has not led to an increase in true wisdom. For example, Medicare has one of the largest data banks in the world, yet it sent an official letter to a retired housekeeper which explained the reason for terminating her benefits in this way. Your benefits have been denied because of your death. Now, if you believe this information is not correct, Please contact the Social Security Administration. <laughs> Many have referred to the current era as the information age. But it is ironic that in an information-rich era, the biggest threat to our world societies, rich or poor, and to each of us personally, is the absence of moral clarity and purpose.
Take the United States, for example, where 94% say they believe there is a God, yet a full 79% also believe that there are few moral absolutes. What is right or wrong, they believe, usually varies from situation to situation. Societies structured by situational ethics, the belief that all truths are relative, create a moral, a moral environment defined by undistinguished shades of gray. We cannot cope with the confusions and the challenges of this world unless we use a clear and consistent moral compass that will unerringly take us through our own personal trials and the tugs and pulls of our own temptations, a compass that will chart our way to peace of mind, self-worth, and joy. This moral compass is built around four absolute truths. The first absolute truth is that there is a loving Father in heaven, and His Son, Jesus Christ, is our personal Savior, a more certain truth than any worldly fact. This concept is expressed with unmatched eloquence in John. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Nothing could provide a truer north for every person's own moral compass. The second absolute truth is that there is an adversary, Satan the tempter, who would lead us away from God and His infinite peace. Note that the Hebrew translation for devil is the spoiler. Satan is the spoiler because he would confound our moral compass and spoil our journey back to a loving Father in heaven. Satan, the father of lies, increasingly uses various devices, ancient and modern, to confuse us. He would convince us that joy is not where it is, and contrarily, he would have us believe that joy is where it is not. One of Satan's most spiritually damaging lies, which undermines our sense of self-worth and hope, is that we cannot be forgiven of our sins. The third absolute truth is that all of us choose our own course, endowed by agency. This truth is clearly expressed in the Book of Mormon. Wherefore men are free, free to choose liberty and eternal life, or to choose captivity and death. For the devil seeketh that all men might be miserable like unto himself. Yes, who we are is the sum of all the choices we make. We should always remember that our choices do not begin with the act, but in the mind with the idea. As a poet stated, sow an idea and you reap an act, sow an act and you reap a habit, sow a habit and you reap a character, sow a character and you reap a destiny. Given our agency, we are therefore individually responsible for our ideas, acts, habits, character, and, yes, even our destiny. The fourth absolute truth is that the temptations of the devil can always be overcome by renewed faith in God and by repentance. Yes, when we stray from that narrow and straight way marked by our moral compass, our footing can be restored on the road that surely leads to salvation and eternal life. When Christ went to the Garden of Gethsemane, clearly knowing of His impending crucifixion, He prayed to His Father for His apostles, as well as for each of us. In that prayer, He commands us to avoid evil, but in His infinite compassion, He also asked the Father to keep us from the evil. Life will bring to each of us challenges and setbacks, both dark days and better ones.
But remember these words of Paul. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, cast down, but not destroyed. Paul also reminds us gently in fitting words for an information age, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Yes, we can experience wisdom, peace of mind, self-worth, and joy, not only in the life to follow, but in the life each of us lives today by walking in the Savior's footsteps, guided by an unfailing compass, calibrated on these eternal and absolute truths. I say in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.